Before we get started, raise your hand if you need a Bible. Everyone got their Bibles? Praise the Lord. Okay. Well, let's open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll be spending service here today. We have communion today as well. Pastor Steve will be leading us in communion. Uh, so we are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 here and so blessed uh, for the time in this book. This has been just an amazing study, especially with the days we're living, uh, to see these things unfold, to look towards the imminent return of Christ and focusing on the rapture. And fast, chapter 5 just literally brings it home. It just brings it home. It's such a beautiful chapter. Um, and then we go right into 2 Thessalonians, and we just keep on keeping on until uh, the Lord comes and takes us home, or we get to the book of Revelation, and we do it all over again. Amen? Amen. 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 Some of us that have been here for five years, six years, we will almost be, probably by year seven, you will have gone through your entire New Testament and at least three quarters of your Old Testament, line by line and verse by verse. Well, Lord willing, if you should... Come soon, we'll get to hear the master teach it, and uh, I long for that, to hear Jesus Christ open his own word and teach it, like oh, all the things that we, as much as we've read our Bibles, have missed, but yet when he speaks, he is the word, and when he speaks that into life that way before us, we're all going to be wrecked. It's going to be beautiful and wonderful. So let's pray. I'll get out of the way and let's let the Holy Spirit speak to us this morning. Father, we thank you for the beautiful privilege to come and worship you this morning. Please receive our, our praises, our alms, our adoration this morning. May it be just a sweet uh, sound, a sweet aroma that was lifted to your ears this morning as your people come together, Lord. Uh, in these last days, I do believe the remnant, Lord, the remnant of the church, um, and I pray for the churches all over, Lord, all over the world that are meeting this morning, that are lifting uh, just holy worship to you. And I just thank you that we can gather as one accord, the bride of Christ, and just, just bring you that simple sweetness of our heart. There's so many things, Lord, that you could have asked for us. And the one thing that you said, the will, your will is to be worshiped and praised. And Lord, you are worthy. As we look here at the chapter 5 here of your word, Lord, we, we pray that you will anoint it before us this morning, that this last chapter, 1 Thessalonians, Lord, I, I do believe maybe some folks here, they said maybe this is the first time they've gone through this line by line and verse by verse, Lord, but maybe there's others that have been through this a thousand times. Lord, all of us have come away changed from this book. Maybe somebody here this morning has a new favorite book of the Bible because of the application your Holy Spirit's given to us this morning and each morning. So we pray, God, just bless our socks here this morning. Continue to open your truth as we await your soon coming. We pray this and ask this in your holy name, Jesus Christ, and all of God's children pray. Amen. Yeah, I do believe that as the Lord was you know, pricking my heart uh, for the last few weeks, I said, I, I imagine that some have now adopted a new favorite book of the Bible, 1 Thessalonians, because this was Paul's exhortation to this church in Thessalonica that was facing oppression. We'll continue to read that because, remember, he was only in Corinth about 18 months, and we know he wrote First and Second Thessalonians while in Corinth. So some period of time, very small period of time, of 18 months. I mean, 
You know, 18 months goes like that, right? So he wrote both of these epistles and letters, and to think what he was saying so often, you know Thessalonica, you know Thessalonica, you know Thessalonians, these things. But he was reiterating it to them because he wanted them to have comfort and to have peace and to be expecting an imminent return of Jesus Christ. So as we pick up here in chapter 5, let's, let's practice good hermeneutics and let's go a couple verses ahead so we remember the context of what he is talking about. He said in verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. He's speaking of a resurrection, and he's speaking of a rapture. The rapture is what is in context here, right? Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, uh, that's the word harpazo, that's the word we get for rapture, actually, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. It's talking about how we'll go up and be raptured to the air. Christ and the dead in Christ will obviously be, the spirits will be coming with him, and we will at that point turn around and go, as John tells us, to be with our Heavenly Father, okay? And we will be at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the, the beautiful marriage supper of the Lamb for seven years. Again, all makes sense when you look at the Galilean wedding, because as we're going to watch the Coming Wrath movie here in a couple weeks, do you remember how long, well, some of you have seen it, or if you know you've been to Israel or you know you've been to a Galilean wedding, do you remember how long that wedding uh, ceremony, that feast, sort of that celebration lasted? It was seven days. It was seven days from the moment that the father said, go get your bride, and they actually had the wedding. There were seven days in between, and then he would come, and then they would come back, and that was the end of the celebration like that. Again, you can't miss it. You can't miss what Jesus Christ was communicating. I mean, you can't make this up. So literally, it's that caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and then we shall be with the Lord, and I love it. It says, always. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And now, in context of the rapture, in context of the harpazo, he now says, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. The very first thing he says is not that seasons and times aren't important. He says, no. He says, although I was with you for either three Shabbats, minimally, or, as some scholars might think, between three months, okay, as he was in Thessalonica, whichever one you, we know minimally, it's either three Shabbats or possibly up to three months, he's saying that he had taught them already these end-time events. This was not something new that the Thessalonians had, uh, had have never heard of before. They were familiar with this teaching because it is doctrinal. The imminency and the return of Christ, the harpazo, the rapture of the church, and even the second coming of Christ when he physically touched down for judgment, all this is doctrinal. And the first century church, they were taught and lived expectantly. They lived every moment of every day expecting the return of Jesus Christ, and it absolutely transforms your life. It transforms your life because you no longer are living for the things of this world. You keep a light touch. You keep a very light touch on the things of the world. Certainly God has given us ministries, our jobs. Some of you are, are working different jobs, and that's a ministry for you. But you have a light touch on that. If the Lord should bring you home, it's not, oh, man, I had more to do. No, no. There's a satisfaction and a contentment to where God has brought you, and his will be done. 
So he makes it very clear. He says, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you because you know exactly what surrounds and the beginning of the coming day of the Lord. He's going to build on that as you read in verse 2. He's going to say, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, that's what's in context here, right? He's talking about the rapture. In verse 1, he turned around and says, time and seasons, that's what's the prelude to what is going to be coming, the things that are happening, the events, the seasons, the times, to what? The day of the Lord. Now, when you read in Scripture, in the Old Testament, almost every time you see the words, the day of the Lord, it's used to express a time where there will be impending judgment, where judgment will be coming. It doesn't mean it's immediate, but it does mean that judgment is coming. It is speaking to that justice of God, okay? So it says, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. He says that, and we understand the imagery, obviously he's not saying that, you know, there's going to be a thief with a bandana and the whole thing, right? We understand the imagery here of what he's saying in this particular. He says, as, that's a simile, a metaphor, like or as, right? Whenever we see scripture, we take it literal until we see words like as or like or similar. We know those as similes or metaphors. So clearly he's telling us as a thief in the night. In other words, he says, you know perfectly this day of the Lord. You know perfectly what's going to surround those events. How? Because they were taught by the apostle Paul and he had reiterated it when that question had come to him all the way back in chapter four, you know, verse nine. You know, and he had gone through, and if you want to even back up further than that, at the beginning of chapter 4, he had already addressed the question that somebody said, what happens with those that are dead in Christ before Jesus has come again, right? Before he's come, are they just vapor? I mean, did they just cease to exist? What happens? And he goes back and says, oh, no, no, no. You didn't miss the coming of Jesus. You remember that? We covered that extensively in chapter 4. So he's tying this back in. He says, you know these things. I've taught you these things. Be Bereans. Don't listen to the other doctrines and the other things that are coming in by the Judaizers and all these other people that are coming in and they're going to try to give you or espouse a different doctrine. He goes, no, no, no. You keep on with the apostles' doctrine, the word of the Lord, right? Acts 2.42. You keep on with the apostles' doctrine. You yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Whenever you hear somebody say, I know that God is coming, that Jesus Christ is coming, you know, September of 2022, run. If you ever hear me or anyone from this pulpit say something like that, you grab a hold of me and you sit me down and you say, what is wrong with you? Pray for me, right? Pray for me, of course. But you have a serious conversation because that is in no way from the Lord. Never. And every year or five, we hear about these guys that stand up and say, I know the Lord. It's, you know, it's always around the September because they do pay attention to the feasts and things like that. But it's always, hey, you know, the Lord is, uh, he's coming, you know, September 21st of, you know, such and such date. I mean, this has been for thousands of years happening, by the way. And you can look at the uh, study in church history and go through and study these guys. I have, there's hundreds of them. And they come and, you know, for whatever reason, they need all of your money at that point. You know, because if God is really coming and we're going home to be with Jesus, 
why does the Lord need our money at that point to do all those things? Like it doesn't, it never, you know, as though somehow Jesus Christ is going to go bankrupt, right? It doesn't make sense. No, they're fleecing sheep is what they're doing. They're fleecing sheep. And I can think of Harold Campy. Some of you know or heard of that man, right? He turned around. I mean, do you realize how many millions of people at one point sold houses, you know, cashed in fully their 401ks, did all these things because they were sure that, and, and some not correctly, also ran up debt. That's never biblical. If you're going to take on debt, you should pay repay that debt, right? That's honorable before the Lord. So these things that we see, but they ran up these things, and then all of a sudden, he, he turns around and takes their money and moves away, never gives the money back, and never says, oh, you know what? I was a heretic. No, they don't do that, do they? They, they rob and they steal. And you know what? The world is watching, and they see those kind of events, and then they say, you see, there they go again, those Christians. He doesn't represent Jesus Christ. He doesn't represent the word of God. And what it does for the body of Christ is it's a work and a ploy of the enemy to sow division into the church, to create doubt and uncertainty. That's not a new play from his playbook. If you look back in 1 Thessalonians 5, that's exactly what was happening. That's why he's sitting there and says, you know for yourself perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Don't be surprised about these things. You know, I, I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, please. Look at verse 25. We know that a part of God's plan, the season or the times and the seasons, as it says there in chapter uh, 5, verse 2, or in 1, excuse me, I meant to say, we know what he's talking about, that, that there are events and things that are happening that are culminating, right? We know that in 1948, Israel coming back into the land, as it was prophesied, was one of those events as a time and or a season. That's why in the 80s, you had right around um, 88, there was a great movement, a great revival that had happened in that timeline because people thought, well, it must be within a generation from when the time of Israel coming back in the land, that's not what the word of God says, but, but they assumed that and they said, well, he must be coming. And so in 1988, there was this great revival because everybody thought, well, Jesus is coming. I better get right with God now, right? Well, look what verse 25 says here in chapter um, 11. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. That's a revelation that's been made known. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel. What was another teaching going on? And it, by the way, every once in a while we hear it again today in the church. The idea of replacement theology that they have taken and they try to replace Israel with the church you see, when you start to uh, hold different es you know, eschatological or different end-time views, you end up saying, well, then what's the point of Israel? What's the purpose of Israel? What's the purpose of the 144,000 Jews? What, what's going on here? And you begin to take out of context God's divine plan. He says, no, Israel has a place in end-time events. Jeremiah 31, 31 talks about a covenant that they are going to receive. By the way, that's the covenant you and I have already received. You've heard me talk about that. He says they're going to get new hearts. By the way, what happened to you and I when we were born again? Did we not receive new hearts? Spiritually speaking, of course we did. 
For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that the blindness in part that happened to Israel is until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There's a plan that God has for Israel, but it's unfolding. And what is one of the things that's unfolding? God is doing a ministry and a work to the what? To the Gentiles. That means non-Jews, you and I. Anybody else that's, that's not from the tribes of Israel is a Gentile, okay? And so God is doing a work, and it's until that last Gentile is what? Brought in or saved into the fold. That's what we read in Romans eleven twenty five. So somebody find him or her and lead him to Christ, and we can get home, right? Amen? You think I'm joking? Go. I mean, I, go to the islands. Go where you got to go. Go to your neighbors. But the reality is, is this is part of the seasons and the times. As we read in chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation, we're going to look back there. He's talking about the church age. He's not focused on the church of Israel at that point. That happens after chapter 4 and throughout all the way to chapter 19 and 20, okay? Because then the focus is no longer on the Gentile church, although nations do get saved, every nation, tribe, and tongue. We do read that in Revelation. The focus is on the, the, the covenant, Jeremiah 31, what God has said, prophesied through Ezekiel. You know, the plow being put right in the ground, not even needing to witness that way because everybody's going to know who Messiah is. And they're going to come. There won't be a need to even evangelize after, after that anymore. After, you know, that time when we go to the millennial kingdom, after that time, there won't even be a need for that because everyone will be able to see Messiah Jesus. They'll be able to see him. For a thousand years, still there'll be an uprising. We know that. But there'll be no denying who he is. Look at John chapter 14, please, in your Bibles. John chapter 14. Look at verse 3. Again, we've, we've been to this passage a, a number of times, right? He said that, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. Where was he, or where is he speaking about where he was when he ascended into heaven? Did he ascend into heaven into the air? He ascended to where? To heaven. I kind of answered it in the way I said it, right? I could have said that differently. Did he ascend into the air alone, or did he send all the way up to heaven? They didn't stop and see him sort of floating in the air and going, wow, he's just staying there. No, they eventually went out of view. They could no longer see him because he went from the first firmament to the second firmament to what we read in scriptures known as the third firmament or the third heaven, as Paul describes it, okay? He's up with, Christ, he's up with the Father in heaven right now interceding for you and I. You do realize that Satan has not been caught, kicked out of heaven yet. You understand that. That doesn't happen until the book of Revelation where we read, that finally he is kicked out of heaven. Which, what's he doing? He's the great accuser. How many of you read the book of Job? You know what he's doing. Satan is the father of all lies. He's up there accusing you and I. Look at this person. Look at that person. What a liar. What a this. What a that. And Jesus said, you know, this is my son. This is my daughter. So there's a lot of times and seasons. And he's saying, you don't need help, brethren, 
Sistrin, if I can say it that way, you don't need help recognizing these times. Why? Because they were focused on the imminent return of Jesus. They were aware of the things that had to happen and correspond to when Christ would come again. So he's saying, again, concerning these times, now you know yourselves perfectly that the day of the Lord, it's going to come as a thief in the night. There's no way to possibly know. And yet, if you read Daniel chapter 9, as we did last week and the week before, when the rapture comes, we know when Messiah is coming back, because we'll be coming back with him, don't we? Because it's seven years. So it can't be when he physically comes and touches down on earth and establishes his millennial kingdom, because every one of us is going to be able to tell you that date and time after we've been raptured or at the period of the rapture, because it's seven years. We, we can all know the date and time. It's not a thief. There's nothing mystery, mystery, you know, mysterious about that. For when I say peace and safety, now I think that's an important element that we also see. It's not what I think a lot of people think it's going to be right before Christ comes. Because remember, what does the rapture, and that's what's in context as we started in verse 16 of chapter 4, what does the rapture bring about? It brings about the end of the what? Church age. And then it introduces what? The seven-year great tribulation. Okay? So we know exactly what he's saying for the times and seasons, but isn't it interesting that before the end of that church age, he says they're going to say something. And what are they going to say? They're going to say peace and safety. They're going to say shalom. Peace and safety. Then sudden destruction comes. Upon them as labor pains of a pregnant woman. Again, as, like, as, metaphorically. What's he saying? Have you ever seen, ladies, you know what it's like. You went through labor. Those that have had children here, ladies. Or a niece or a relative or somebody, you know, sister, you, you've seen that. Guys that have gone in and watched your wives been there as they've gone in labor. You have seen what goes on. There is no stopping it. When they are in labor and they're going through contractions and those contractions get very, very close to the point of where they're about, you know, the doctor's scrubbing up, they're getting ready, they're coming in because the baby is about to come out. The Lord's going to bring forth that baby at any moment. You can't look at your wife and go, and by the way, funny story, I did this. Don't ever do this, guys. Hold on. Hold on. You know, my wife is so kind. She, Are you out of your mind? You know, she didn't say that. She just was like, and then went back to focusing on what the Lord had before her. The doctor, it was our fourth son. We had just made it to the hospital. I have to tell you the story now. We had just made it to the hospital. At that time, we're in the vehicle. We're racing to get there. And, you know, um, don't do that either. I'm not in any way encouraging you to speed. Uh, uh, but we're, we're, we're about 30 minutes from the hospital. And, and she, was the, she was in the shower and the contraction started coming very quickly. It was our fourth one. It was going to happen anymore. And she's like, we got to go. And I'm like, okay, we'll get the bag. She's like, leave the bag. We got to go. And I'm like, okay, so we're in the car and we're going and there's school buses. And I'm like, maybe if we get the school bus to lead the way for us. But anyway, we get to the hospital. We're upstairs and, uh, you know, we just, I just, I forget at the time. I think we just left the vehicle running like right in the front. I just walked in. I'm like, we're good. They'll, they'll valet it or something. We'll, we'll be, that just shows you my nativity. I was like, they'll figure it out. Well, just, we just got inside. I'm going upstairs. She's in a, a wheelchair. The, the lady comes out and says, you, you look like you're, yep. We get upstairs in the hospital. We're up in the room. The, they're like, okay, why don't you go in the, the room here and just sit for a minute? 
And again, four children later, my wife looks nicely at the nurse and says, um, no, it's time. And there's like, oh, no, honey, we appreciate it. And Lisa's like, you know, just gracious, not going to yell. She's just like, um, I really think it's best that you get me a bed and it's okay. You know, I just need to do what I need to do and, you know, just make way. And very gracious, very gracious, the whole thing. Well, they get ready. They're mo- they put the monitors on her, and they're like, oh, you're getting ready to go. And she's like, yes. So they get ready. They take her into the other room. And the doctor goes to get scrubbed up. I don't know how I got into this story. And the doctor gets, I got I to gotta finish it now. You want to know? The doctor, you have to share it with second service. I don't know if we'll get there. But the doctor turns around, and they're going to scrub up. And, you know, she's... Approaching, she's going to have the baby. There's no, and so I look at her and I go, can you just wait a minute? Can you wait a minute? And that's what I know when I read this passage and it's the labor pains. There is no stopping this. I have tried it. I looked at my, I'm begging her, please stop pushing for a moment. The doctor is not here. I don't know what I'm doing. And she's like, the baby is coming. The Lord has it. And I'm like, and so I'm looking directly at the doctors. The doctors literally as fast as the doctor can put on the outfit and all the blue stuff and everything. And I literally, all I heard is she's having a baby. And I, boom, I just caught the baby. And I was like, and you owe me three grand. <laughs> and I, and I kind of joked around with the doctor. I was like, hey, I did the, I'm in. Let's do this. I can do this. And um, at that moment, I, I, you know, the doctor came over, took the baby's healthy. Thank you, Jesus. Everything's good. I then turned around like, you did a great job. I walk in the other room. I darn near wanted to pass out. I just sat there. I was like shaking for a moment. Like what just happened? Doctors do this all the time. God bless them. I don't know how they nurse. You know, this is serious stuff. And um, this, this really happens. So when the labor pains are going, there is nothing that's going to stop this. This is exactly what we read here. When this has gone into motion, when the Lord begins with the rapture of calling the church home, there is nothing that's going to stop the unfolding of that seven-year great tribulation. It is already in motion. It is already moving. There is nothing that's going to stop the judgment and the wrath that's going to be poured out during those seven years. We have to understand that, which is why we need to reach the loss now. The stakes are high. There will not be an opportunity to turn around and say, Lord, we pray you'll pause this now. That won't happen. Those that will have to go through that will face just a devastating, devastating time. So when they say peace and safety, please look at that. It's not what we think where everybody's going to turn around. That's why during the pandemic, you heard a lot of me say, this isn't it. As I was looking and I was saying to the church, this isn't it. And people, what do you mean? Because nobody during the pandemic was going what? Peace and safety. That wasn't what they were saying. Now, that didn't mean difficulty wasn't before us, but I meant I knew it wasn't the rapture at that moment because then it w- I would have expected that. That would have made sense. To me, that wouldn't have been a thief at the night. Or in the night. It would, have, it would have sort of been like made sense according to God's plan. Okay, Lord, let's just do this. It makes sense. It's really getting bad down here. Let's, let's, let's you know, boom, right up in the air, right? But what we read here is actually when this appears to happen or shortly thereafter, The world is not going to be saying, oh my gosh, the Christians are gone. Why is all this happening? Bad. You know, we have to now find all these other people to do these jobs. And what's going to happen with these houses or these companies or any of that? No. Contrary, actually. They're going to be seeing peace and safety. Then, and right after that, and it it almost is is sort of, you know, imminent, immediate that way. 
sudden destruction comes upon them. Notice it doesn't say upon us. Upon them. Grammar matters. Why? Who is them? He's contrasting the world from the bride of Christ because only those in Christ are raptured. Only those in Christ are raptured. So he's, again, making a distinguishing feature here when he says them. As labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. There is no turning back. Um, but, you know, what we see here is that we as believers, we are going to be able to see these seasons and times. However, the world, it's not a thief to us in some ways because we can see these things happening. And although we may not know the exact time or hour, we can say, wow, Lord's coming, right? We, we, in these last days, I think we can all this morning sit here and say, we know the Lord is coming. We're getting very close, if not imminently close, right? We, we all should believe that here because there's enough going on around us. Nothing else needs to be fulfilled scripturally for the rapture of the church. So eschatologically or eschatology from that perspective, we can go home now. Like the Lord can rapture us right this moment. There's nothing prophetically that needs to be fulfilled. You couldn't say that so many years ago. Even when you read the book of Revelation and you look at the technology, the ability to destroy this world seven times over, all of the things that you couldn't have imagined even a hundred years ago. A hundred years ago, you couldn't have seen these things and said, oh yeah, this could happen at any time. While they believed in the imminent return, there were still things where, well, how's this going to happen? How is it going to be that you know, with the two witnesses, we can see someone that the whole world can be watching these two witnesses as they're standing there. Before you had TV, right, there was no technology for that. We take it for granted because many of us grew up, although I grew up when there wasn't a TV in our home, many of us grew up where there was TVs in the home and it's what you knew and you just watch it on CNN or on Fox News or on Newsmax and you, you just... Take it for granted, and to us today to say, "Oh, you mean we're going to be able to see the? Two, they're going to be able to see the two witnesses, and like, you know, the eagle, the whole bird watching thing, where they watch the bird on the camera deliver the, you know, the eggs. It's going to be like that with the two witnesses. They're just going to watch. Like they're not going to be able to take their eyes off these two witnesses. That's what we read in Revelation. But it's this idea here. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so the world is ex not expecting this, and they're going to get totally blindsided. But you and I, we're not blindsided." We, we, we are actually expected by God to recognize the seasons and times. Please understand that. That's very, very important. We are expected to recognize this as born-again believers in Christ. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, right? You're not ignorant. That idea of darkness can't see ignorance. That's what he's saying. So that this day should overtake you as a thief. He says, this is not what's going to happen to you. You know the seasons and the times. You know it's coming. You've prepared. You've put your, your life and your estate, your, your family affairs in motion. How unfortunate would it be to not put your affairs in motion? If you knew that you were going to die tomorrow, would you not put your affairs in motion? Would you not turn around and make sure that your, um, in, in the case where the bride of Christ would still be here, where you would make sure that your, your, your wife, your, your husband or your daughter, your children, your nephew, your family, somebody was well taken care of. They had financial provisions, whether it's through life insurance, whether that's through a 401k or something that you've done. Would you not in some capacity try to make sure that they 
uh, maybe you leave them a house or maybe you apartment, uh, you know, rent controlled or something to that effect where you have gone forward to try to establish that. You would. You'd make, you'd make um, decisions and, and you'd be living accordingly. You wouldn't be expecting uh, two weeks from then to turn around and think that you need something else to be here because you know if, if the Lord had confirmed that in your heart, you're going to go be with Jesus. But yet there's so much of the bride of Christ today that is not living, I would say, for the first time in a long time, that's not living with the understanding of the direct imminency of the return of Jesus Christ. You can go out throughout all church history, and it was the primary thing that Christians looked to and for and lived accordingly. But we have had such comfort and wealth and different things in our country just generationally in the last five generations, in a way that our great-grandparents, most of us, never understood. They were farmers, or they come up agricultural, different way. You know, we didn't have supermarkets. I mean, really, some of us that are over 45 or 50, go back in your memory bank for a minute. When we were growing up, there wasn't a, a food chain the way we understand today. Our parents went and they had a garden, most of us. And they would go to the garden, they would pull out and they would come in and they would prepare things. Or, or even, you know, if they did go to the supermarket, they went a couple times a week because, I'm going to use a term, icebox. Some of you remember those, when they would deliver the ice in the icebox. I still have a picture of our, you know, we had an icebox. I can remember my grandparents, you know, keep the ice even with the newer fridges. Close the fridge door. Grandpa, it's, it's plugged in. It's, it's okay. No, it's going to let all the cold bought air out. No, no, no. Grandpa, it's, it's, it's not going to melt. It's, it's, he says, I know that, but just close the door. Yeah. You know, I can remember the oil being Italian. They would keep the oil. You wouldn't turn around and just dispose of the oil. Like, you know, we use olive oil today or whatever you fry. You would destroy. No. Back then, they would keep the oil, and they kept it in the oven or in a jar. And then when they would go to reuse it, they'd pour it back in, and they would, they would cook with it because it was seasoned oil, and it had great taste, and it was well sought after for that. I mean, I just want you to understand, we have gotten such a generation, and I know the Lord has allowed this, but the enemy has played upon this, where he has allowed us to get so busy, so quick, doing so many things, that we have forgotten our roots, Christians. We have forgotten the church and what it meant to be to live as though tomorrow we're going home and to have a light touch. doesn't mean we're not, uh, some of you that are in business, not successful. Of course, you do all things, Colossians 3.23, all things heartily unto the Lord. You absolutely do. All things heartily unto the Lord. But it doesn't mean that you turn around and you hold on so tight that it forces you to have a different view from an eschatology perspective because you begin to live life on earth like it's never going to end or like you don't want it to end. You hold on so tight to our health. We all do that today. I mean, doctors and, and, and those, they're meant to help us, but the health, the health system's overrun. It's overrun today because we want to live forever. I'm not saying you or I the world. I mean, they're trying to figure out, do you realize we have technology to implant when you go to the dentist? Devices that can go as small as a, as a thumb, you know, even a fingernail, even smaller. 
that you can put on that can track and to be able to keep your caloric intake by your saliva. I mean, we have technology today and in countries. I can remember 15 years ago when I worked for a particular company where we had investors come in and they were asking us to invest in a, um, an Asian um, uh, country, uh, continent area, where they wanted us to uh, be able to change eye color of children so that it could be uh, ordered that way. I would like my children to come out brown eyes or blue eyes. Yes. In America, we haven't really seen that aspect, but, but we, we can't be ignorant because we did see cloning, didn't we? Remember Dolly? And they cloned that. So we have seen fringes of this, but the rest of the world has seen much more of this in a lab because <clears throat> different aspects of how you come at things. You know, we were established as a Judeo-Christian nation. And because of that, we approached life that way. It's, it's not until just those last few generations that we have seen the things happen today. You know, the movies, the filth, the things. I mean, it's striking to us because, as I was just saying on Wednesday with the flock, I said, you know, I put a movie on for my kids from the 80s. And I have to literally pause the movie and run it through VidAngel with a filter because I can't even remember. And I can't believe my mom and dad let me watch some of these things that I now hear. And I'm like, oh, my, I would never let my children or my wife hear that. I would never let the enemy bring that filth into my home. I want to do everything I can to protect my home and safeguard my children from the filth of this world. You know, I don't want to put them in a bubble, but I certainly don't want to entice that filth in my home. How many of you love to have the word of God like Hope FM playing all day in your house? How many of you love to have Christian music and just blessing the house and covering the whole house all the time? I love that. He says, you are sons of the light and sons of the day. We're not sons of the darkness. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not a night or of darkness. We're aware, right? He, he says, you need to be sensitive to that fact of influence. What kind of influence? I'm going to give you two things. Self and sin. Self and sin here this morning. Those are the two aspects of influence that have permeated the culture. We are such a self-centered culture today. Our feelings, our emotions, our, our, everything is focused on self and sin. The depravity of what our soul, which is your conscious emotion aspect, right? Separate from your spirit and obviously separate from the body. That, that which pursues those things that are contrary to God, sin. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. He's, he's not saying, listen, church, you can't have a glass of wine. If you're in leadership, you can. You know, we make all our folks in leadership here. We don't do that. First Timothy 3. God's very clear. We have no alcohol. But for the bride of Christ, if you have a glass of wine, there's no sin in that. You're allowed to do that. You're not to be a drunkard. Let's be very clear here. Bible doesn't want you to be a drunkard, but to have a glass of wine, you're, you're, you're fully, uh, you have that liberty, right? But he's not even talking about that. I want to be clear here. What he's really talking about is being watching. And so he says, let us be aware again of the seasons and the times and the things that are going on. Let us not be asleep because when it's dark, what do you do? You don't sleep at night unless you have a job where you work nights. The idea is you begin to Slow down. Your, even your heart rate, your resting heart rate begins to drop. 
your heart rhythm begins to change. Melatonin, about three hours before, well, two hours or so before, begins to produce, and you start to produce more melatonin. Just even the brain chemistry alone, study it, it's fascinating. All the things that go into a good night's sleep and how your body is already being prepared by God to bring you to that point of calm rest. Why? So your parasympathetic system, right? Because you have a sympathetic and parasympathetic system can do what? It can downshift. Because when your parasympathetic system doesn't downshift, that's your digest and relax system in your body. Compared to your sympathetic uh, system, which is what is your fight and flight response system in your body. When that's revved up all the time, the brain chemistry and the hormones and the cortisol that's produced, it keeps you revving. And it doesn't slow you down to the point of where you ever felt like you're jittery or you can't slow down. Or even when you go to sleep, you wake up, but you don't feel well rested. That's because you've, you've burned out your adrenal glands and your parasympathetic system. And I'm talking from somebody from experience here. Okay, I've been there. Or should I say been? I'm there sometimes. Where you got so many projects, so many things going on, you're just, and you got to just rest. Take time with the Lord. Meditate on the word of God. Something I've been really trying to be more focused in, and I'm trying to be watchful and sober, and I'm trying to do these things to realize the times I'm in because I'm not to have a faint heart. I'm not to have a heart. I'm not to be surprised by the way and the evil and the things of the world. No, it's just, as I read right in chapter 5, verse 1, it's times and seasons. It shouldn't scare me. It should just warn. It's what's coming, and I should be aware of it. And, and I'm doubling down, right? I want to be about my father's business. All of us. It would be unintelligent if I can just begin, begin there intellectually. It would be unintelligent to see these things happening, to watch saw a woman going into labor pains and contractions to go, you know what? We, don't, we can ignore this. Nothing's going to happen. And then she's two minutes apart on her contractions. No, no, no. We got 30 seconds. When we get to 30 seconds, that's when, what? What's going to happen? It's not generally going to end well. I don't mean that the baby's not going to come forward. I just mean, we're, you know, you might be delivering that baby. God has said that these mysteries have been revealed to us that we're not caught by surprise. So I, I just want to look at you all in the eyes here this morning and say, how are you living life? This is why I really believe chapter 5 is one of the most important chapters as Paul, through the Holy Spirit, is speaking, you know, speaking and preaching to those in Thessalonica. How are you living? Are you living like Jesus Christ is coming back? Are you excited about that? Are you, are you praising God, come Lord Jesus, come Maranatha? Because I fear that there's so many in the church that keep hitting the snooze button. They just keep hitting the snooze because they're, they're not being sober and they're sleeping. They're just hitting the snooze. And the question is, are they really saved? I don't know. Maybe people ask that question. That's not the right question to ask because only God's the judge. The question is, how can we help them to understand these end time events so that they are prepared and ready? It's only the right thing to do. Look what he goes on to say. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. Again, this is symbolic, but we understand what he's saying. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love. Please notice that with me. What does the breastplate guard? If I, if I put my hand and it's a breastplate, what am I guarding? I'm guarding the heart. 
How do I guard my heart in these last days? In these last days before the rapture, what am I to do? There's two things he told me that are the only two things that are going to guard my heart in this passage. He said, faith, faith comes by hearing, hearing by what? The word of the Lord, the word of God. Faith, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the what? The word, the word of the Lord. Reading scripture, being in the scriptures, living out the scriptures. That's number one. And you know what he says the second thing is? Love. The breastplate protects the heart. He says in the last days that what's going to happen to the world, they're actually going to grow cold, wax cold in their love. But not you and I, believers. Not you and I, friends. We're never to stop loving. We're never to stop turning around and walking in faith. He says, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Just think about that for a minute. What's a helmet guard? Your mind. Our hope. He's been talking about hope, which is confidence. That the word of God brings about confidence. That love and loving others, being focused on others and not self-focused, does what? It brings about confidence. It brings about hope. For God did not appoint us to wrath. He now tells us why. Here it is. Here's where your hope is. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what's our confidence in? Our confidence is that Jesus Christ already took the wrath upon the cross. That's where our hope and confidence comes from, that he's taken the wrath upon the cross. Who died for us, whether we are awake or asleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, he's talking about those who've died ahead of time, you know, or previously, I meant to say, already gone to be with the Lord or those that are still there. Therefore, because of all of this, because of the rapture, because of faith, because of the word of God, because of hope, because of the fact we can gather as a bride of Christ, comfort each other, edify one another, just as you are doing. He says you're to comfort, right? You're never to lose hope. When you begin to question that, go back and read. Go back and love. Because something when those two elements is off within our hearts. Therefore, comfort each other and edify. That means to build up another, just as you are doing. And we urge you, brethren, right? To recognize that those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Huh. Hebrews chapter 13, 17 says it's not good if there's many teachers or many in, in authority because they're what? They're the whole idea of being doubly judged. Pastors, teachers, leaders. This is serious stuff. We need people that will stand up and lead today. I will say that to this church. We need leaders in this church. People that are willing to stand up and lead. But when God calls you, please understand there's a sobriety and a seriousness to that. You will stand before Jesus and have to give an account for everything you've done. And I think about that all the time. When I'm tired, when I'm, you know, when other things are going on in my life and I'd rather just, you know, take a break. You know, I, these things are serious. And without the strength of Christ, we can do nothing on our own, amen? Some of you are leaders at your jobs. You're, you're put in a position at the workplace. God has you leading. You don't get to just take time off. You aren't to lead as a carnal man leads. Because you will answer to Christ for this. 
It's not those that just handle the word of God that are going to answer to Christ. Leadership. You will answer to Christ for what you have done with what he has given you and placed you because you have never been in that position by your own authority. God has put you there. It's just a wake-up call. But the other thing is for the flock or for those that are under you, employees, whatever it is, he says that there's times we need to admonish. There's times we need to correct, isn't there? And we can't shy away from that. We're not to turn around and be so worried about hurting someone's feelings that we let them continue in sin. No, leaders need to lead. You're to do it in love with faith, but you are to lead. And there's times you need to admonish. And look, we get it. We're living in times where people don't want to hear it. You, you invest in somebody, you admonish them. I'm going to go find a new church. I'm going to go find a new job. Again, do you know how foreign that is? Five generations ago, my mother and father worked at the same place their entire careers. Some of your grandparents and parents did that. You didn't just shake another job because you, no, you grew through it. You learned to overcome in Christ the obstacles or the difficulties. You didn't just turn around and say, well, I don't like the way they treat me. I'm taking my my hat and I'm going over here, or I don't like the color of the rug, so I'm leaving the church, or I don't, no, you didn't do that. It's a sign of the times, actually. It's a sign of the seasons and times that people don't want to be corrected any longer. They don't want to be admonished. They don't realize that when you're doing that, you actually are investing in them and loving them, rather than ignoring the sin and just being like, you know what, I'll do whatever. I, they're not my problem. Nobody... Many of you lead here, right? You, you don't look for those conversations. As a matter of fact, they give you agita, don't they? Those conversations, when you have to correct, when you have to step in, they're hard. I don't care who you are. They're very difficult. They upset your stomach. They can mess you up because you don't want a confrontation. But these things have to happen. And he's, he's saying, look. You must exhort. You must lead. You're going to, Hebrews 13, you're going to give an account, but also those that are being corrected. And by the way, I get admonished a lot. I'm corrected a lot in love here. And I love that. And, I'm, and I have pastors and senior pastors in Calvary and other places. I, they, you know, we talk on a regular basis. If my heart's off, I get admonished. I don't run from that. I recognize that, that, I recognize that you love me. And I recognize that they love me. Otherwise, they wouldn't take the time to invest in me because it's so much easier just to ignore it and go the other way. But we, as a church, I speak to us, Calvary Chapel Harrisburg here, please recognize if there's times of admonishment, it's not because somebody doesn't like you. It's because they love you. It's because they know and they're called by God to invest in your life and to be accountable and to go through it with you, not without you. The goal is never to send people away. The goal is always reconciliation. And that's my prayer. We've had people come over these years and stay and leave and different. My prayer, and I pray everybody who hears this, my arms are always open wide, no matter what's happened. Because this is God's church, and there's always an opportunity to reconcile. And there should never not be. The prodigal son knew where to come home because his dad didn't pack up his bags with him and his brother and decide they're going to move to another farm. No, the prodigal knew where to go home because dad was there. Dad was there. Our circumstances change. Our God never does. 
So as we finish this here, and to esteem them high, very, or esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. That's important, right? Remember, he's already corrected them. Just because the end times are coming doesn't mean we get lazy, fat, and dumb. I'm being direct. It doesn't mean we quit our jobs and live off of a, a government system because it's easier than actually working, presuming we can. If there's different reasons we can't do that, that's entirely different. That's not what I'm speaking about. But if we have the ability and God is calling us to it, it's a privilege. When did work become something? It was before the curse in Genesis. It's a beautiful privilege to work. And there's seasons for that. Sometimes those seasons are our work is in our home. It's in the lives of other people. Be, a, be at peace among yourselves. That's important, right? Because they were fighting, remember? Some of them were turning around and quitting their jobs and saying, well, Jesus Christ is coming tomorrow. I don't need to work. And they were just quitting their jobs. And, and the, the church, everybody else was then going to support them. And he's like, no, that's not how that works. If you can work, you should support yourself. That's what he's saying here. And again, I know today in churches, this is not being preached because the social justice gospel wants to be preached, which is a feel-good gospel, and it's the exact antithesis of the word of God. Now, we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. Hey, that's also difficult. There's sometimes when people are here, and they're unruly, man. And you got to say, hey, relax, settle down, right? Nobody wants to do that. But Paul's exhorting them, hey, when you see that kind of stuff, people are caring. No, you no, wait, we don't act that way. That's your brother. That's your sister. You're going to spend eternity with them. Don't you dare treat them that way. Don't you raise your voice to them that way. You love them. You invest in them. Comfort the faint-hearted. Uphold the weak. I love that he put there, you know, the faint-hearted. What, those are people that are easily um, discouraged and needs comfort. He didn't turn around and say, well, because... You might be constitutionally weak in emotion that you just trample on them. No, he said, you know what you do? You go up and put your arm around them and you comfort them. You invest in them. He says, uphold the weak. And he says, be patient with all. This is great exhortation on what it is to live like a Christian in a Christian church. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. You know what he's saying there? No revenge. There's no room for revenge in the body of Christ. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. That's the idea of constant communion. It doesn't mean you have to walk around at your job and going, and the Lord, you know, no. You can, you know, just, it's a constant communication stream with God. In everything, give thanks. Now, this is important. He says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. How many of you want to know what the will of God is for your life? Well, I can tell you it begins with giving thanks to God. Every morning, every evening, do you pray before you go to bed and God, thank you, please, Lord, I know I pray. Thank you for all you've done. And I thank you that you're going to restore my soul tonight as I sleep and that I'll awake revived, right? Thankful. We have so much to be thankful. Every single one of us has so much to be thankful, no matter what's going on in our lives. We are blessed beyond what I'm going to go so far to say is 80% of the entire world 
in the United States of America, what we experience, the food and the, 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 the houses and the, 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 the monies and all the things we have here, you travel to foreign countries, and I have, and you see how other people live, you come home changed. You come home wrecked, running water. Do you know that through the pandemic, what was happening in the DR and other places like that, that literally those that had wells, because wells aren't, you know, abundant, that they were turning around like monopoly situations and they were just basically selling water to the point of where people could use all their life savings and stuff just to get water for the day to water their crops and their animals and themselves. We never thought once during the pandemic about, pandemic about going and taking a hot shower or by going to the stove and boiling water to make a pasta or a meal. Do you know that that is a thought for a good portion of the third world countries? That's what I mean. So many generations, only five or so, and how our lives have changed and how that has wrecked the church. It has wrecked us. If we don't go back to what Paul is describing here and that thankfulness and that understanding of the times and seasons, if we don't do that, we are being bamboozled and led astray. We start to look to our government to support us instead of our God who's ordained it. Do you see why the United States of America is in the position it's in today? It didn't happen overnight. This has been happening for 50 and 60 years. It's a slow simmer boil. It wasn't turned up in the last four or eight or 10. This has been happening and the church has been lulled to sleep. It's time to awake bride. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. That's the idea of a fire. You know, he's often referenced as a fire, the Holy Spirit. You can quench a fire by pouring water on it or something. He says, don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecy. You know, there are those that don't teach in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And they says, don't do that. E. Epson's a call out prophecy here, but you can pick any of those. Don't do that. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. That means be Bereans. As you go through encounter things daily in your lives, bring them to the word of God and see what God would have you to do. Some of the most successful things that I've had as ventures in business is because I went to the word of God when it came to whether it was selling off a company or doing something we've done. And I, I literally, people, how did you, you make your decision? The word of the Lord. You'll never go wrong. I promise you, you'll never go wrong, whether it's, you know, what you might think of common things in your life. Bring it to Jesus. He'll never lead you astray. The word of God never returns void. And then my favorite passage in verse, or my favorite verse I meant to say in verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. In the King James, I really love the word it inserts there. It uses the word appearance. It says, keep yourself from the appearance of evil. Do you know that I don't, I will not go out with a woman outside of my wife alone to a restaurant and eat because I want to avoid the appearance of evil. 
I won't ride alone with a woman in a car unless there's another male or somebody else there or another woman or something like that because I want to avoid the appearance of evil. Some of you this morning might be saying, wow, you're taking that pretty literal. Yes, I do. I take the word of God. Abstain from every form of evil because I know that the enemy wants to tank this. He'd be more than happy to, you know, take me down or any of us down. And ladies, the same way. There is a modesty. There is thinking ahead, you know, about these things. Never put yourself in a situation. Uh, when you meet with someone at your jobs that's of the opposite sex, leave the door open. Unless it's a private meeting, and then have somebody sit in front of the door. Take those extra steps just to protect yourself. That you could never be, you know, above the or beyond the appearance of evil. All the pastors here do that. All the leaders here do that. Because we have known men that have fallen, not only in the Calvary Chapel movement, but in other churches, they have fallen because they've well-meaning but put themselves in compromising situations. We have an enemy that's on the prowl, a lion seeking to whom he can devour, as Scripture teaches. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you and com uh, completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body, please notice that. God is a triune, isn't he? Father, Son, and Spirit, right? And so are we. We are a triune. Our triune is what? We are a spirit, soul, what is your soul? That's your conscience, your emotions, and body. We are created in the likeness and image of God. Be preserved, blameless, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? He says that we would be blameless that way, that we would, that we would be preserved. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. That gives me great confidence and hope. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. That was common. They would kiss each other on the cheek in that culture. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy, to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Friends, the Bible needs to be the strongest influence in our lives so that we have the faith and love to protect to be protected as it, as it protects us for the days ahead. Next week, we'll come back if the Lord should tarry and we'll read 2 Thessalonians. Pastor Steve, will you come up and lead us in communion?